You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor. From Equestrian Businesswomen, and you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we speak with Marie Marks on how she got started in a tech incubator, how that helped her build her business, and how she plans to revolutionize the equine sales business. As the CEO of Bridal.co, Marie Marks leads the charge in revolutionizing the equine trade landscape. With a relentless passion for innovation, she aims to create a cutting-edge marketplace that seamlessly connects buyers and sellers in the sports horse industry. Drawing from her extensive background in startups, venture capital, and horses, Marie brings a unique perspective to the table. Having worked alongside renowned investors, she possesses a keen eye for identifying high potential opportunities and driving strategic growth. Her track record includes successful partnerships and investments that have fueled the success of numerous startups. Marie was a business development and partnership associate in Europe for Draper University, as well as an investment manager for Centec Ventures in Spain. She also worked as a fundraising consultant for Florify. Marie is driven by a relentless pursuit of excellence. She thrives on challenges and is known for her unwavering commitment to delivering results. By leveraging technology and embracing transparency, Marie has transformed the equine trade process, ensuring a secure and efficient experience for buyers and sellers worldwide. Calling all equestrian businesswomen. Desert International Horse Park and Equestrian Businesswomen are hosting a networking night out for women entrepreneurs in the industry on Friday, March 8th from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the Palm Club. Join us for an incredible night to meet like-minded women and make connections. A ticket includes hearing from a panel of experts with a Q&A, a delectable dinner, along with wine and assorted beverages. Don't miss out on this one-of-a-kind opportunity at the EQBW Networking Night Out to foster your professional development and join our community. Buy your ticket today at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to talk to you and kind of dig into what, what you've got going on a little bit deeper. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Well, both Jennifers is the Jennifer, Jennifer, Jennifer. I'm super happy to be here. Like you guys are, are the first people that actually give me a chance to speak in a podcast. So that's that's great to once be on the other side of the of the screen. Oh, that's so exciting. And I know um, we connected through LinkedIn, which I absolutely love because I've found so many great people and guests and um, that have interesting businesses. So uh, let's jump right in and talk about like how you decided to um, build your business and and your passion for being an entrepreneur and combining it with your passion for horses. Yeah. Um, so to start a little bit, like I come from a horse racing background. My dad is is a horse racing freak. Like nothing else matters than than just horses to him. My granddad is a racehorse. Uh, well, he was a jockey and a trainer as well. I was born in the capital of horse racing, which is Newmarket in the UK. So I was always kind of just a horse geek, really. I had nothing else that that I cared more about than horses as a kid. 
Um, I come from a super normal middle-class background in Europe. So road horses my entire life, but never really, you know, show jumped officially on the big circuit. None of that. It was always a, a, a weird kid. Like I always tried to find ways to make money. Um, you know, I had my, my first business when I was 14 selling horse treats that I made without looking at the electricity bill of my parents and things like this. And that was <laughs> the way for me to fund my private classes and things. And anyways, I was always finding a way to make money. Um, not sure it was the best customer service back then, but that definitely kind of empowered the spirit to, to be an entrepreneur, not having what I wanted pushed me to kind of find ways to get to where I wanted to be. So kind of traveled the world a lot. Um, I spent a lot of time obviously growing up in France, then back and forth in the UK, would always go abroad to ride horses, finding those crazy working student placements anywhere around in Europe I could. Then I moved to South Africa when I was 18 years old to ride there for six months, came back to the UK, like kind of crazy adventure. Um, and when I was 18, I moved to Barcelona and that's where I was the most rebellious version of myself. And I decided I wasn't writing anymore. And I decided I wanted to work in venture capital. And I got a job with a business angel from Qatar. God knows how I convinced them to pay me. But my job was to find entrepreneurs to invest in. Crazy job to have as a 19-year-old. And, you know, meeting a lot of people, seeing a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to change the world was a really, I think, empowering moment for me to say, hey, actually, this is what I want to do. I don't want to work for anybody else. Um, one thing led to another. I stopped working for that guy because I wanted to work for myself. It was a crazy, bold move. It was the year of COVID. I was stuck in an apartment in Barcelona, started ideating around the idea of selling horses because that's kind of always what I wanted to do. And that year, I was also selected the venture capitalist program of Tim Draper in Silicon Valley, which is a five-week entrepreneurship program um, in California. And I couldn't go because of COVID. So kind of used that year to continue working on my project. They hired me. I worked for them for a little while in VC and kind of all the money that I made in VC and working in the ecosystem of Draper, I reinvested kind of building my product and in myself and in the kind of lifestyle I needed to be able to have this company. I arrived 2021, uh, I flew to California, did my program. At the same time, I was working for them. So it was kind of impossible to manage. And that year we launched, started selling our first horses, quit my job. And then I was like, okay, we'll just make this full time, which is a crazy bold move. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, I, it's... It amazes me um, how many people can take that jump and not knowing, you know, you can prepare as much as you can and think you know what you're getting yourself into. And then once you are are in it, it can be a much different um, situation. And you mentioned um, the the work uh working with tim draper and can you tell us like what a tech startup incubator is yeah absolutely so the the, the program in which i was wasn't necessarily like a like an incubator as the typical standard it was more like a pre-acceleration program so the way in which this guy has it set up is that he's got funds he's got you know actual incubator programs where you stay there for six months a year and things like this 
the program I was in was a pre-acceleration program. So people show up from all over the world. You've been kind of pre-selected to have, you know, an idea that's valid, a profile that they like. So when I got there, obviously for me, it was a bit different because I had worked for them as well. But I kind of had this transition from working for them as an employee or a contractor to, hey, um, now I'm kind of, you know, part of this program as an entrepreneur. You show up, there's a hundred people from all over the world. So, so many different cultures interacting in one same building where you are going to live there for literally five weeks. Everybody has a different agenda. Everybody works in a different industry. Everybody has a different idea. But the common kind of criteria for everybody is, hey, I can change the world. I'm convinced that my idea can be the number one leader and can be worth X amount of billions in X amount of years. So this mindset is absolutely unbelievable. It's really empowering. And I think that's the main driving factor when you're there is that you think you're actually pretty good. But when you look at the people around you, you're really nobody. Like everybody outsmarts you. Everybody outworks you. When you work 14 hours a day, there's a guy that's going to work 16 hours a day and go for a jog at 5 a.m. Like yeah. it's really, really, really unbelievable. Um, the thing I liked the most about that program is how much they focus on team spirit. So we work on our individual ideas, but we have a team of, I can't remember how many people we are per team, like I think it was five people. Um, and you have to do, you know, activities together, whether it's business classes, master classes. We saw so many different speakers. Um, one of the prime cool things about that university is the connection. I mean, that pre-acceleration program is called Draper University. It's the connections. I worked with people, as I yeah. say, from all over the world. Uh, we met CEOs. For example, the guy from um, the CEO of Webflow came to give us a class. Years before Elon Musk had come, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, we didn't get to meet them. Mark Cuban also gave a speech there. Like Every single day, we had different people with different backgrounds giving us different types of awareness and different aspects of business. So that was brilliant. Another part which I thought was mind-blowing was we had a woman called Gina come kind of give us um, a day training about our mindset and about visualization and about, you know, it's not the manifestation thing, but almost, you know, like to the core. She's a woman that works with Tony Robbins. So it was a really, really, really cool day. Like we were all crying like babies because it's so <laughs> deep and it was absolutely unbelievable. Like people listening to this are going to think that it's a, a bit woo-woo. It's absolutely not. It's really, really empowering. They they teach you so much about yourself. Um, and then we also did a, a survival week, which basically you're in the middle of freaking nowhere, California, on the really? phone by a billionaire. <laughs> you're basically your phone's taken away from you you have to do a crazy day in san francisco to get clues and in order to get to san francisco you actually have to manage to sell products to buy your train ticket to get to san francisco they asked us to sell condoms before getting on the train (laughs) on the street ridiculous but the thing is it's so interesting because it gets you to stop being ashamed and it gets you to, mm. I was quite ashamed. Don't get me wrong. It's quite funny. But then we get to San Francisco, spend a day there. One, we discover the city. Two, we work as a team. There's so many arguments that happen, so much drama. So you really learn to work together. And by the end of the day, you're super tired. You cross the bridge over to the other side. They pick you up and drive you God knows where on a farm 
And on that farm during a week, they made us hike 16 hours a day. We wow. were we had $15 for food for one week. So we had to learn how to not starve to death. We had a chicken <laughs> we had to kill in order to be able to eat meat. Like so much freaking crazy things, right? We had to build a boat and cross a river. And the person that was the most uh, dry won the challenge. We had oh, to, wow. they make you cross like a, like an arm of the ocean. And then after you cross it, they tell you it's shark breeding ground. Like there's so much stuff. <laughs> It's completely nuts. But funny enough, it was one of the best weeks of my life. Um, this is where I also met my partner, obviously, who's now working in my company. And it was crazy. He was an instructor there. So we got to meet there. And now we're together, but also together in the company. Like the mm. life-changing week, literally one of the best weeks of my life. Because you don't have technology. You just have to connect with yourself. And you have to... It just highlighted that I'm extremely undisciplined and I'm not made to be part of any military group. That's all I <laughs> But yeah, oh. that's kind of how we got there. Yeah. Amazing. That's amazing. And and actually so interesting because you really have to be that resilient type to be an mm. entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship is like I'll dive deep into topics, especially related to horses, because like when we think business is hard, do business with horses. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like you have to be resilient and you have to also believe that there's always going to be a way. Sometimes mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, like at least in my case, when you don't come from money and your parents tell you you're completely crazy and they're not going to fund you. The only way to fund yourself is to achieve. So for me, the way to build a company was selling horses. If I didn't sell, I had no marketing budget. I had no sales. I had no no team. Like, And we fully self-funded, which I think is nuts when I look back now. If We've been able to do a lot. But you need to have resilience and you need to have this mindset of being present. Like one of my biggest challenges, sometimes I face adversity and I'm like, holy moly, how am I going to get there? That if you present and you stay present and you're like, okay, well, be resourceful. Everything is right now okay. Don't be too worried about tomorrow. And that's one of the biggest, I think, skills. But it's not easy. Takes mm. practice. Yeah. And it's interesting, when you were going through all this, did you did you have in mind that you were going to build into a sales, like a horse sales company? Is that what your plan was? Yeah. I mean, for me, like, okay. I need to, to think a bit about how I pitched this the right way, but I've always thought about building a business around my values. I want to be an honest person. I want to be a great person. I want to wake up every single day, whether it's now or the day that we're hyper successful with all the monetary stuff that we want to have in our life and say, hey, I actually did my best every single day. I never screwed anybody over to get to where I am. And my goal was always to do something in horse sales because I always saw a big gap and I've seen it in racing and I've seen it in show jumping and I've seen it even with the lower, cheaper, kind of more affordable horses, whether it's whether you need an agent or not, there's very strong amount of horror stories. And it's a shame because yeah. they're so beautiful and, and they change our lives and they're so innocent. And I really think that they give us so much on a daily basis that you know, for me to build a business around horse sales, it had to make sense and it had to align with who I am. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. When you were going through it with the other people that were in the program, 
did they think you were crazy because of the horse part uh, or interested? Like, they, how did they view it? Yeah, I mean, look, the weird horse girl stereotype will stick to you no matter what. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, when you tell horses, like, okay, when I started, maybe. But now when I speak to horses, uh, to horses, when I speak to people outside of the industry and I say, hey, I make my money by selling X value horses, multi-million dollar horses, like, or that's my goal at least. They think it's the freaking coolest thing ever. And most mm. people that have nothing to do with horses will tell you, oh, that's actually a thing. You make commission out of selling horses. Like people that don't know that genuinely have nothing to do with the market think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Which I get I that a lot too. too. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And um, I, I just find it really interesting that a program like that is really teaching you values and and like you said the resilience part of it and and how to be the person who can start and run and make this business successful it's not just business skills right it's being a person skills <laughs> and um i think that's really cool because maybe not every program is like that you know maybe other programs are just teaching you how to run a business or how to make money or how to bring in uh, investors, but this one really seems different. Yeah. I mean, I think that the reason why it's different is because of the people like, Mm. you know, there's so many great universities and people will go do their masters, but at the end of the day, what's the real value that they gain? It's not necessarily what they learn because I can learn the exact same thing by looking, watching YouTube videos or watching Ted talks or stalking articles on Google. The value today is open. Connectivity exists. You can find whatever piece of information you want. You can even learn with TikTok if you want to. So I think that the real value today is the connections. And I think for me, going through that program, the connections on a personal basis, as I said, have changed my life, whether it's in my romantic life, which was not supposed to happen. It's not part of the program value proposition, but it it happened. On a friendship level, I have friends from all over the world. That will, no matter what, even if I don't speak to them for 10 years, one day I'll reach out and I'm like, I'm an alumni. I went through that with them. You know, like some of us really were freaking hungry hiking. And, (laughs) you know, we've gone through roller coasters of emotion. I've cried during that program so many times. And pitching on stage can be terrifying for some people. And, you know, you're pitching a crowd of billionaires. You're pitching a crowd of people that can change your life. And some of the people that went through the program got opportunities. Some of them stopped their companies, but got hired by top companies. Some of them just kept going. Some of them realized entrepreneurship was maybe not for them. Like Mm. there's so many conclusions. And I think that it's really, it's not just about that program in particular. I think that in general, startup incubators, startup programs, universities that invest in entrepreneurship make a change. But I also think that it's about the connections you can get yourself in that position without spending thousands of dollars flying to California. You can use LinkedIn and connect and network. And I think that at the end of the day, it's about the mindset and it's about seeing where your limits are as a person and being able to go kind of the other side of them. But don't, don't think I'm a superhero. I hacked my way through. 
I completely <laughs> hacked my way through. I was hiding foods in my pocket when I was not supposed <laughs> to have food. Like there's a lot of things I did to make sure I would be a bit better positioned. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> like stuffing granola bars in your socks. <laughs> not starving to death. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> like what else? Like I, I have so many, so many things. Like, but I, I'll chat it outside of the podcast. <laughs> How how do people find these kind of opportunities though? Like where should they look for them? Google. Mm. Yeah. Like that the way it's funny because the way in which I got this opportunity, or the way in which I got any opportunities, right? I was never smarter as a 19-year-old than a 19-year-old that comes out of college. I backed out of my business program because I had no money to pay for my studies when I was a student and I needed to get a job and I had no choice. And the way in which I got my job in as for that business angel, I mean, I was paid quite a lot of money as a 19-year-old to look at other people's like investment proposals. Did you think I had a clue what I was doing? I had no idea. I was mm. just great at bullshitting my way through. And also I, I wanted, I had so much passion. You know, I really, really wanted to get there. And I learned throughout the process because if I wanted to stay in that position, I had to learn. And I think that it's always been, networking to get that position with that business angel i sent over 600 emails and everybody wow. told me my curriculum wasn't right i didn't finish even my bachelor's in business who would want me on a venture capital role then i got an internship i proposed people to work for free like there's a lot of things i did to get there i got fired from several companies because <clears throat> truly i had no idea what i was doing and i was getting those roles because you know i can speak several languages and this and that and it's attractive and appealing but like the incubation program I got at DU, the, the scholarship I got to go to California, I got it because I presented a startup congress uh, event in Barcelona as the role I had when I worked in, in, in venture capital for that man. And there I met somebody that was visiting Barcelona and worked for them and happened to be offering scholarship. It's always been that work. I never got a job or one opportunity in my life through a curriculum or a piece of paper. Never. Every time mm -hmm. I do an interview, they tell me I'm not good enough. Whereas every time I just, you know, give it a shot and and find the opportunities and find people, it's always worked really, really well. I I subscribe to this too. I, I've pretty much gotten every job that I've had through some kind of reference or connection that I've made and contacts that I have where people are like, oh yeah, if you're looking for something new, let me know. Hmm. And I think that it's such a valuable thing. And Jen and I are both really passionate about it. That's why we started Equestrian Business Women was for the networking aspect. And we think we just uh, recently had a meeting in Wellington in Florida and like I was buzzing for a week afterwards just about all the people that we met and, and the energy that was in with the room with all of these great women. And I think uh, the feedback has been that people are really enjoying that contact, you know, face-to-face -face contact now and the connectivity that they're getting out of those kind of groups. So it's nice to hear that like you, you took that to like almost a different level. You're outside mm -hmm. of the equine industry just making these connections it's amazing and it's it's life-changing what you guys what you ladies are doing is is like could be life-changing to someone they just need to meet for example i don't know it could be that 
that wannabe working student meeting that one trainer that's going to say, hey, I'll give you a chance, even if you don't jump 150s as a young rider and your parents have hundreds of thousands to spend on horses. It could be that equine photographer that gets their first clients. Like, I think, I mean, I could go on and on with pretend examples, but I'm sure it's already happened. And I think that being able to bridge that gap and, and providing a network is is unbelievable. And when you look at it, we do the same thing. Yes, I sell horses. You guys provide opportunities, but it's network. We do the exact same thing under different kind of value props. But at the end of the day, what we do is we bring people together. It's the exact same thing. Right. Um, and I think that any business, any business, especially high ticket products, if I can say that, or high ticket services, it's people. Like I have the number of five billionaires in my phone. I'm 25 years old. I've never finished a business course. You know, I could never learn that at school, but it's the father of a friend, right. the father of this, the father of that. It works. And that's how it works. And it's about being a good person who genuinely cares. It's not about, hey, let's provide them my service, that one shot thing and never speak to them ever again. It's really about long term relationships. And I think that what you ladies are doing with these events is it's so freaking dope and it's so needed. It's really, really needed. So congratulations to you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So after your um, your program and and you decided to go on your own and start Bridal, uh, your company, can you explain kind of what the service provides and kind of what sets it apart from other similar companies? Yeah, absolutely. So as a little clarification, I actually started Bridal while I was working. Um, okay. Well, I launched it while I was working for DU. Before I did the program. So when I went to the program, I had already sold probably three or four horses. The first horse we sold actually happened to jump five-star Grand Prix for Spain and win a Nations Cup year later, which was not supposed to happen on my plan, but it did. Um, And we had sold already a few horses, so we kind of had that proof of concept. But when I I parted ways kind of thing with my job... um, I mean, I had no plan. Like, I had no plan. I parted ways with my job, not because I made a choice, just because both couldn't align. I couldn't take client calls when I was on a Zoom call with work and vice versa. And it was just really give it your all or it's just not going to work. And for me, it's like, okay, have comfort and make tens of thousands of dollars a year and be comfortable and post your little pictures on Instagram or give it all you got. And maybe one day you'll be the number one in what you do just because you work so hard and because you believe in yourself, for me, the, the, the biggest risk was not trying. Like, mm-hmm. I, I knew that if I didn't do it, I would hate myself until the end of times. Because for me, this is this is my dream. Like, it really, really is my dream. And started a company, again, goes back to laying good foundations for the market. I think that everyone wants to be a horse dealer these days, especially with WhatsApp. People forward videos and they're like, hey, give me 10%. Um, I think that's total bullshit. Like, I think that's the biggest possible bullshit that (laughs) has ever been seen in the horse market. Um, You know, when you look at, I had this conversation with a big, big horse seller. Back in the days, people would put videos of horses on a CD, send the videos to America. Weeks later, had clients come try, whatever. And then it became social media and then it became WhatsApp. The natural next move, is a marketplace 
Whether you look at us, you look at competitors, Clip My Horse, who's a partner of ours, has their own marketplace. Some of our horses are on their side. Like It's about connectivity. It's about connectivity and it's about digitization of a process that is poorly managed. Hmm. It's about trying to bridge a gap between people that are looking to buy and people that are looking to sell while providing as much quality service as we can. So today we are still a small company. Uh, we're, you know, a small team. We work our butts off to get good deals done. And we really try to provide as much value as possible. But we aim in the future as we self-fund, as we grow to be a major player in equine trade. Um, the way in which it looks today is we have the marketplace with about 60% of our horses privately listed. So what I mean by this is 60% you can't see available to sell because... Mm -hmm a major part of the market doesn't want their horses advertised. They believe in word of mouth. They believe in exclusivity, which is 100% logical. When you look at how the market works, this is how we had to reflect it in our product. So when people tell me, oh, I don't want to put my horse online, I'm like, well, it's the same thing as if you send your horse to your friend who's going to send it on WhatsApp, but at least on our side, we know exactly who we send it to. We know exactly how many times they look at it. Like We control the process a lot more. So if they escape us, which is kind of the risk with marketplace models or with clients in general, we know exactly who, when and how. Um, mm. And that's kind of kind of how we started. We like to consider that we want to provide value to our customers from the beginning to the end. So say Jennifer one wants to buy a horse. She says, hey, Marie, I'm looking for a 145 horse. I have, say, 200K budget, okay? 200,000 euro budget. Once you have an account on the app, we have a call, of course. We kind of get to know what you're looking for. You like them uphill. You like them with this. You like them with that. We go back on our side to see what we have available on the system privately and publicly. Once your account is up, I can put together like a catalog of potentially suitable options. It's your choice, of course, at the end of the day, what you like. So once, once I send you that catalog, you take the time to look at the videos, the photos, the results, this, everything. You say, hey, Maria, I like horse number one, two, three. You maybe request more information from the sellers. Maybe you need a flat work video to see if it does a change as well or, or whatever. Once you get to a stage where you have a narrowed down list of options that you particularly appreciate, I always put people in touch. If they skip me, they're not my clients and they're not the sellers I want to be working with. It doesn't really happen. If people are not in touch, how can they ask questions about the horse's behavior the horses like it would be a complete lie for me to say hey i know these horses inside out it's not true i know maybe five percent of them or some not even i know the ones i would see every single day which is some but not many so we put people in touch once we have a real strong idea that they're genuinely interested in that specific horse mm. of course we're here in the calls we're here to support every single bit of communication and we're here to aim to organize a trial that is fair on both the buyer and the seller we're here to help with the organization of vet checks without ever picking a vet for our customers. Like it's always, we can help, we tailor the process to you, but we're not involved with choosing who you pick, of course, for the vet. Um, and every single operation is different. We have clients, for example, that try horses several days in a row, some clients that try them one day in one place, one day in another. Like it's, it's still as tailored as can be. Joseph likes to call it a white glove kind of service and it very much is what we want to provide 
once we get to a stage where you tried that horse, for example, you pulled blood on the horse while it was tried, you vet it, it's like time to close the legal process. So we work with two law firms, um, one that's American-based, well, UK and America-based, another one that's Belgian-based, and they basically kind of draft up the contracts. Once that contract is reviewed by both parties, maybe you have some changes you want to get to. Once that's done and dusted, we send that for digital signature. The invoices both from bridal and the sellers are released, or one invoice is done with the commission, the price of the horse, etc., and the horse can basically leave once it's paid. The idea behind all that is that every single operation is always going to be different. Like, no mm. matter how much tech I want to put in there, they're never just going to buy a horse online. There's always going to be a team. And the day that I can automate as much of that process as possible, because there's a lot that can be automated with tech, they're always going to speak to a bridal sales team member at some point in the process. So that's mm -hmm. kind of how we structured things until now. I was going to ask, you know, it, I think the horse world and I think especially in kind of the hunter jumper world in the US and, and maybe the jumper world in um, Europe as well has, I think, for buyers who come into it, either not knowing the industry or not knowing how things work properly tend to get taken advantage of by people who are, you know, representing the horse for more money than it's worth so that they can get a bigger cut um, and give the money back, you know, give us a smaller portion back to the seller. Um, and I was going to ask you kind of how you keep this from happening in what you do, but it sounds like with the contracts and, and the commissions clearly stated, it's uh, people know exactly what they're getting and what they're paying um, and who that money is going to. For sure. So like, one, there's the aspect of sourcing the horse as closely to the owner as you can. So if it's not the owner, it could be the rider working for an owner, which ha happens a ton, like especially mm -hmm. people producing horses. The legal aspect is a big part. The sec Because if one person is lying through a legal process, like that is straight mm -hmm. away. Touch wood has never happened to us. But when you ask for passport, you can ask for you know, proof of invoices. This is not something that people will generally kind of give because there's not as much transparency as I would like in the full sharing of all the documents of how much you bought the horse for and all that. We don't ask for that, but we really try to have a process that is very straightforward. Sometimes mm -hmm. we deal with the rider who works for an owner, but it's still not five dealers in between that were asked right. for a horse. Like it's sourced straight from 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 the, the source. Owner. Yeah. And the owner has to sign that document is not the rider who's going to sign that document. So, of course, if the rider is owed something or costs or maintenance, production, whatever, that's a new awareness of the owner. So there's no yeah. commission hidden on that aspect. Now, when it comes down to trainer's commission and trainer's percentage, which is a very, very taboo topic, and I don't know why, mm. um, we've worked with trainers that are amazing people. And there's two models. Either they will get paid the commission by their client, separately from the operations so it's just as easy i mean i don't see why an american trainer would have to get paid from europe from a transaction that doesn't make any sense or it's clearly stated in the contract i have absolutely nothing against trainers that will make 10 15 20 percent however freaking percent they want to make if their client's aware of it like they could right. make 100k on the horse if the client knows it what's my problem with that I have no say and no problem with it my problem is when things are hidden 
and that yes. comes both from a personal you know standpoint because for me like 50k is already a lot of money so why mm-hmm. you know whether it's 50 or 5 million respect people like money is hard to earn the economy is going down things are more and more expensive why would you not let people enjoy what they worked so hard for so that's kind of why we, what we think and i believe that quality trainers people that are genuinely out there for the best interest of their clients wouldn't have an issue sharing how much money they make in a deal because we are supporting them a hundred percent these are the people we want to work with yeah yeah I mean, I've almost gotten in trouble before where, um, not not myself in trouble, but I'm saying I had a pony that was for sale a few years ago for like $20,000. And I found out that a trainer that I was working with who was trying to sell to another trainer and another trainer, they had the pony priced at $50,000. Wow. <laughs> and they were going to take all they that were take, They were going to take that $30,000 and split it up between them. And I was going to get 20 for this pony. And I was like wow, I'm not, no, like when I found that out and it was just by accident, I totally killed the deal. I was like, you know, I'll just keep it. (laughs) I'll just keep it. So (laughs) for sure. And it's like, it's like sometimes like, cause, cause people know we're advocate for financial transparency and stuff. And they'll still try to come to me. Oh, like add 20 on top. And I'm like, no, you idiot. Like, I'm not going (laughs) to do that because I believe like, I'll share a little bit how the commission structure works now in a minute, but I believe in selling more horses, making less money, having double the impact rather than selling less horses, doing a one shot, likely getting caught for it and making less money in the long run. For me, it's not about it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Mm. I'm not I'm doing an endurance race like it's not a, you know, quick run. It's really about building long term relationships with people and having a long-term reputation because when we sell horses like on our contract it says that bridal has no liability no matter what happens Mm. there's already so much that can go wrong with a horse even when people tell the truth even when the horse is tried even when blood is pulled even when there's five vets looking at it like you can buy a horse and it can have a colic two days after you import it Or you can buy a horse that the first day you ride spooks for the first freaking time of his life, breaks you back. It can happen. It can literally happen. And touch wood, we've never had issues, but it can literally happen. So when when people have a problem and they come back to a seller, because these things can happen, it's legally kind of supported too, Um, not from us, but I'm saying if you have a dispute, you can kind of turn around to a seller. If you know that the seller was honest to you money-wise, you're going to be less angry than if you know there's a hundred K that has been taken away from you for absolutely no reason. So those are the values we support. And it's not an easy message to share with the world. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not an easy message to share with the riding community, but for the buyers it is, but for the sellers, it's like for the intermediaries, it's not because it's so hard to sell horses and people care about making money and, you know, but I believe in, in values before, financial gains that's kind of who i am that's yeah i wish the industry was like that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i've always thought it should be like zillow where you know you have the entire history of the horse of of you know from the breeder and like what did it first sell for what did it sell for next and you know what did it its entire record there and all of that so that you know you know what you're getting into. I mean, yeah, there's always still things when you buy houses that you don't expect, but uh, 
it, it would just be nice to know um, going into it that you get what you think you're getting. Um, and like you said, you know, there's always funny things with horses because they think for themselves. But uh, yeah, I love that, you know, the values are important to you. And I also think for the most part in this industry, people recognize that and they will do business with you over and over again if they know they can trust you. 100%. And, and, you know, what you're saying about Zillow, this is not something that we have any power to provide at the moment, but it's something mm. that I, I'm looking to provide in the future. Like with technologies, like if you look at NFTs, for example, when mm -hmm. an NFT is sold, the person that created that NFT in the first place will always get royalties when that right. NFT is sold. Mm -hmm. Or when you look at blockchain technology, if Jennifer, I'll call you Jennifer 1 and Jennifer 2. I think it's easier. <laughs> if Jennifer 1 says something and it's on the blockchain and Jennifer 2 shows up and say, no, that's not true. Well, you can bluntly verify that Jennifer 1 is telling the truth because you can check it on the kind of files of the blockchain. To keep it simple, it's right. just a file that you can't kind of go against because it's proven to be true. Complicated story, but made simple. What I would love to have is like, hey, the horse is born. Okay, what are the documents related to the horse when he comes, when the vet comes, when the dentist comes, when the physio comes? What's been the, the training structure? What's been the nutrition process? What's mm -hmm. the horse been eating? Like, I'm, I'm not saying we need to have everything. But if, for example, the stable has a stable management system, you kind yes. of know when the vet comes, how it comes. Like, as much documentation as possible so that when the client comes and buys a horse for 500k, 50k, whatever, they don't just have a horse, they have a horse and a folder with different files that allow them to see, hey, this horse was vetted next time. This horse, because there are customers that will take a risk and buy a horse that doesn't pass a vet check. It's yes. clearly happening. But if that client knows that it's clinically sound, just has issues with ulcers, it had maybe, I don't know, a colic surgery or whatever, but it's not likely to cause a problem. But that's why the price is like this. Or the horse... For example, the horse had a stop in the past. That can happen to any horse. But the more you know, okay, the harder it makes it to sell horses. But also, if that is a standard, right. it would be a problem. And I think that the resistance we're facing is that we really, really want that transparency. But because it's not a standard yet, it's challenging. Yes. Do you have and a there's lot of nobody? Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just wondering, like, do you have a lot of um, pushback on this? Mm. push back from the people that are not honest yeah yes and i also think the other problem is you know you can do as much as you want in terms of transparency and who you're doing business with but uh you know those standards if they're not enforced by somebody who has the power to make an impact on the ones who are not being honest then what do you do you know it's i i can I could give you five names right now of people that I know that are dishonest, that everybody knows are dishonest, but they're still doing it. People right. are still buying horses from them. Yeah. And it's like, because they're, because nobody's enforcing it. What are the, is it the federations that do something? Is it more of a, in the US, it would be state law or is it federal law if you're importing horses, that sort of thing? Who know? I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's one of the issues is that, you know, for the, the people who aren't doing things honestly, 
they're not getting caught per se and nobody there's no uh, you know implications towards them and they don't have to nobody does anything about it yeah i think even I the think- people that that gets money stolen from them they don't yeah. do anything they don't take them to court because half the time it's not worth it and they're paying more money in lawyers fees than they would for what the horse is worth but it you know you're stealing money from billionaires who who paid five million for a horse, and even they're not because usually they're too embarrassed to tell people in public that they got swindled. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's crazy. I don't know. I think, I think there's a few things to consider here because even for the names that have been publicly bashed by the media for being involved with certain bad operation or many bad operations. They're still writing at the top level. Yes. They're yes. still involved in top business. And I think that there's several aspects that are required here. One, this is going to sound terrible, but even to me, like, I'm sure some people lie or I'm sure. And this is why we have contracts. Because yeah. as bridal, I can't stand by the word of a seller. That is yeah. not my job. My job is to find a horse that will, as much as I'm aware of, will be what the client wants the client is responsible for picking the option that they believe fit and this is why i always say to people hey involve your trainer because my role is not to see whether it fits your writing i have no idea haven't jumped the 160 level myself i learn every day but this is not my job but this is why we have contracts and this is why we're always going to need contracts i believe that people are always going to try to lie or hide certain aspects and sometimes you lie without even knowing you're lying eh? Your yeah. version of spooky is a different version of what someone else could call spooky. So mm. there's a lot of things that I think relate to education. And this is why I'm so grateful we're having this opportunity to chat about it. This is going to backfire at me big time. But <laughs> education is needed. Like there yeah. is a big lack of education for buyers. Like when you buy a car like and you go to a store that sells cars, there's a process. If you buy a car from a secondhand dealer, you can get sm- sm- scammed. But if you buy a car at a store, there's a process. The second thing that I think is that just I'm patiently waiting for financial authorities in Europe to get involved because there's money laundering, there's corruption. And I mean, legally, uh, hiding commissions from a client, I don't think would look too well on some people. So I think that there is a lack, one of education to a lack of professionalism. People can say as much as they want yes, I'm a top trainer, blah, 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 whatever bullshit they want to share. If you're hiding commissions from somebody or if you if there is no standard of what commissions look like, this right. is not professional. There's no, if you go into real estate, there are laws that state how yes. much commission mm-hmm. can be taken. So it's yes. a professionalized industry. What I'm saying by not professional is not that the people are not professional because there's so many amazing people in the horse world that do things so well. Right. With so much respect. Um, it's just a few that are not great. It's not the majority. We always say horse people are not to be trusted. That's not true. Most people want to be great people. And there's a few that have so much influence, so much influence. And they work together. If you watch them at the shows, see the, see every time huh? you think that the big names that work together, they do. It's a collaborative industry. And there's mm-hmm. really, really, really brilliant names. And there's really, really, really brilliant people but I think that there's a lack of professionalism in terms of what can be done. What are the standards? What are the legal standards? There's a lack of education because 
do you think it's normal that a 22-year-old woman like me can show up and say, hey, I'm going to start selling horses on the internet? I have no and no type of license, no type right. of education that relates to this. Yeah. The first horse I sold, I sold without knowing how a vet check operated because I had never sold horses before or bought horses before myself because I come from a normal financial background. I had no idea. The second horse I sold, which turned out to be super and he sold again and the people are very happy. I sold online without seeing the horse ever, without meeting the client ever in person. It turned out brilliantly, touch wood. But it's when I think about it, I'm like, this is nuts. Craziness. Yet it happens all the time. People sell horses on video all the time that they don't see. Like it's just so much stuff. So I think that education is needed. I think that standard is needed. That's kind of how yeah. I start with it. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I even feel like that as as people who become trainers and you know, just stick a a shingle out and say, oh, well, I saw a horse once and now I'm qualified to <laughs> teach your kid how to ride from a beginner level. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know, I do think that we do, do need to start implementing some kind of standards. We have standards in so many other parts of our life. And, you know, this is this is one where uh, we're putting our hands in other people's lives. Really, you know, yeah, animals, absolutely. it's dangerous. Yeah. So, like right. you can't make cupcakes in your kitchen and sell them without a license. Right. But I, I can go stick you on a horse that who knows if you have the the skill to ride it. And, yeah. you know, in, and if you fall off, you can't sue me if I have like a sign up on my fence. It's, and it's I have, yeah, and sign a waiver. And you right. sign a waiver like that, right. that you're not going to yeah. hold me liable. So, yeah, I know that's. Because I don't crazy. think I could show up tomorrow and say, hey, Jennifer, let me sell you your house. I don't think that's actually possible. No. You need a license. No. Or I can't no. say, hey, Jennifer, let me sell you life insurance. Right. right. You could be a client. You could be paying for it. It could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could be taking a commission. It's the exact same thing. I don't know how the artwork works. Uh, how the heart. Oh, my God. I can't pronounce it. I don't know how the art market works. But... Mm. I do believe that there's some form. I mean, okay, it's also a shady market, but there's also, <laughs> I guess, some form of qualification. Have I ever seen a bloodstock agent certification somewhere? Maybe in horse racing that exists, yeah. but in general, it is really not a thing. So I think that, yeah, we we really fight to create standards. And I'm not saying that, you know, from my 25 years of experience, I know everything. It's not the case at all. And when people come to me and ask me if a horse fits them, it's not my job to tell you that it fits you. I'm literally here to propose you options that are available in the market yes, and right. help you the due diligence process. You yeah. need an expert team. You need a vet. You need. Sometimes I look at x-rays and I'm like, I can't find where that chip is, even though I can spend two hours looking at it. I have no clue about that. This yeah. is why you have to work with great vets. This is why I've worked with great vets that have shared their perspective, but they're not here to make a conclusion for me. So that's kind yeah. of what I think is, is needed. Continuous learning and continuous pushing for yeah. bettering the values and the standard of the industry. So when you started the company, you were working in the US, right? No, I was working. So, okay. So I was not working in America. I was working mm. in Europe and basically as a contractor, making an invoice to an American company. So Got I was it. not an employee. If I say I was an American employee, I'm going to get in trouble at the border. It was not <laughs> the case. I was working from Europe for American people, like an American yeah. company. 
and working remotely. Okay. So, you know, your plan was always to kind of have your business based in Europe and, and have that be the main, um, you know, place that you would draw customers from? Uh, the company is actually registered in the UK. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we started just after Brexit, so I thought that was quite interesting. This is my my tax uh, brain <laughs> thinking, but I mean, for me, it was the most logical thing. I was living in Spain at the time. I'm half French, half English. Uh, I thought that the French system for companies was too complicated, a drama. I didn't want, really want to be res- like my residence being France. The Spanish residency is a whole other drama politically. It's terrible to start a company in Spain. So I was like, hey, let's start it in the UK. And it cost me, I think, 10 euros to register my business. And then there was a few things, but it was so cheap that it was probably the only option. Right. And um, how do you find... So can I ask where you live? Do you still live in Spain? Absolutely. No, um, I left Spain. Now I have a suitcase and I constantly travel from show to show. And when I not at shows, we relocated to north of Italy um, mm. in end of December, beginning of January this year, because uh, we're partnering with some people there. So we have loads of work going on there, but we're not like an official Italian resident at all. Because now mm. I'm in Spain for three weeks, then I'm going to the States, then I'm coming back to Europe, then we, we're on the go. 100% of the time, but our stuff is in Italy, in a nice yeah. house. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a very funny story about Italy and doing business in Italy with a racehorse. We had a stallion that we were standing at Blue Chip Farms when I worked there, and he was in, he was from Italy, and we were waiting for him to come over. And right before he came over, he got stolen by some gypsies, is <laughs> what we were told. No. And yes. And it, for like a month, he was gone. And then I don't know, somehow he showed up on a soccer field somewhere. And then he was able to come over to the US. Uh-huh. And there was some money exchanged somewhere along the way. But yes, he, uh, he did make it eventually and stand over here but it was everybody was freaking out we we're like what do you mean like he got stolen like he's just lost it was wild <laughs> well you know there's this famous um irish horse uh can't pronounce his name correctly is it shargar or something like this shargar that was stolen years ago and we still don't know what happened some people say <laughs> that he died some people say that he got shot some people say he was originally he was one of the best racehorses of the time and he got stolen for like somebody just sent, you know, blackmail letters saying, hey, we've got your horse, like pay the money. And the story says that people say that he was stolen by an Irish kind of political group and without giving names, but <laughs> stolen <laughs> by an Irish political group and that they basically killed the horse because they didn't know how to take care of it after a while. Oh my that's, that's what the rumors say. I don't know if it's true or not, but the horse was effectively stolen. He was one of the best horses of the time. But I always think about that. You can literally show up to a horse show. Like right now, we're in Sunshine Tour. Yes, there is security. But I mean, I'm sure there's probably more than we think. But there's millions and millions and millions of years of horse. And you could just literally show up, open the stable door and leave. Who's going to see you? Yeah. Well, that's what I feel like. This stallion, he was you know, at a training center somewhere. And they, in the middle of the night, the next day, he was gone. Mm-hmm. And then he was running on a soccer field. So, 
The horse wanted to be a football player. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you had to do um, any of this over again, what would you what would you do? Everything. Yes. Same. I think that, okay, same. Like, there's always stuff that you can change, right? If with what if, my mom always says that with what if, you can, or with if, you can redo history. It is true. Like, everything is causing consequences. And I think that if I had changed any of the choices I made along the way, I probably wouldn't have Joseph in my life or on the team. I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I probably would not have sold these horses. Like, I believe that everything happens for a reason. So when a deal failed, I'm like, okay, it fell for a reason. Maybe that horse was not meant to be with this person. Or when something goes through, I'm like, okay, this is meant to be. Um, yeah, everything is learning and and I would not have changed anything because I don't know what that little thing could have changed. You know, maybe it would make me a, a worse person than I am today or a better one, but who knows? So right now, you know, you how many horses do you think you, on average you usually have on your site available? It always changes, like... We had about 200, like, okay, I'm a bit crazy with my team because I'm always like, we need more horses, we need more horses. Like, now we have a 1,000, like a 1,100, which is a lot. But, yes. like, you'll see spikes, like crazy spikes. Like, sometimes, like, the other day I logged on, it was Sunday night at 11 at night just to check. And, like, my team had listed 35 horses that night. And I was wow. like, 45 horses? How am I supposed to create the descriptions, keep up? And now it's a full-time job. We hired somebody. Their job is to list horses. And he yeah. costs me a fortune just to list horses on the platform to make it easier for the sellers. But we had like something like 300 last August. And now we have 1,000. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we're going to sell 1,000, even right. sell 10% of that. But at least we have large offering. And because people are so picky and because the market is getting more and more and more difficult. You can send a hundred, I promise you, you can send a hundred horses to a client that fit what they ask you. They want the number 101 that you don't have available. For right. Yeah. So coming from this perspective, I always focus on having more new. And of course, some will sell, some won't be sold by us and things. It's constantly rotating, but we aim to have a lot of offering. That's for sure. And how do you foresee um, being able to scale up, like you said, you added an employee just to be able to input information. But, you know, the the industry, I feel like, keeps growing. Um, and, you know, is there a way that you see you can keep adding and adding and adding horses at, and still be able to provide the service um, that you do now? Yeah. Oh. Jennifer, you ask two good questions. I think <laughs> so in full, like, okay, let's be transparent here also from a weakness standpoint. One of the biggest weaknesses that I have today is that <clears throat> I try to find someone that is as driven as sales in sales as I am, that is as committed, not just good, but freaking committed mm. at continuing to work on clients. But it's very hard because some people will say, hey, uh, I've sent that many horses to that person. They're not serious. It's not that they're not serious. It's that someone won't know what they want until they've seen it. So if you haven't mm -hmm. showed them what they want, they literally are not going to buy it. So finding that talent is really, really, really hard. And I think that for us, in order to scale realistically, we're going to need people that are passionate with sales and horses and two people that have talent 
And what I mean by this is like, in all humility, yeah, full humility, I speak four languages fluently. So I can handle clients. Okay, I can't speak Chinese or I can't speak Arabic, but these clients tend to speak, you know, English. Um, but I can speak to, I can speak more and more Italian day by day. Like it's not the best, but slowly but surely. I speak fluent Spanish. So the South American market can handle 100%. Speak English, speak French fluently. I'm learning Portuguese. So, you know, there's a lot that I can do myself. So when it's, when I have to find people that speak several languages, are good at sales, know how to handle a client, know how to, these people are expensive. Yeah. And I believe that Bridal will be able to scale by hiring top talent. But if you hire a top salesperson, they also need to know about horses deeply in order to be able to provide a service. So realistically, to answer that question, we're going to need to hire the best. And mm. to hire the best is going to come with money. And to come with money, we need to sell horses. So it's kind of this constant vicious cycle, isn't it? Yes, um, it's hard. It's hard. But I believe we're going to get there because we sell more and more and we have a better and better reputation. But I'm kind of confident and I take my time. Because if I go too fast and try to scale too fast, I'm going to end up with 3,000 horses. I'm not going to know what I'm doing. I'm not going to know what to send to who. And today I still have enough time on my plate that I'm able to go to the show's network, manage every single client myself. I have a team. I have a small team. I have, I'll tell you a little bit about the team, actually. I have Jade. She's 18 years old. This girl is unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. I don't pay her much money because she's still in school, so I pay her kind of a part-time. She speaks four languages. She's obsessed, obsessed with sales. She worked uh, as a working student for StephX two years mm -hmm. ago or last year. How? She sent them a message on Instagram. Then she works for Olivier Robert. How? She messages team. Wow. Now she's she's come to Italy with us and we're helping her find uh, really good opportunities as a writer through our connection and through some of our current partners and people we're developing partnerships with. But this girl is amazing. Like as a friend, she's incredible. She's resilient. She'll take my criticism. Sometimes that can be tough but she wants to learn and she wants to do her best. That's her. Then we have Angela. Angela is also an absolute sweetheart. She doesn't come necessarily from a horse background, but she's a girl that gives it all. She doesn't know, but she'll figure it out. And she's, you know, so involved with sourcing horses. It's unbelievable how good she's been at sourcing horses. I would say that 70% of our catalog is due to her because she's not scared. She will call people. If I tell her, hey, call this top rider from the US, somebody that most people would be scared to call. Okay, because she's not in the industry, she doesn't tie yes. so much importance to who they are. I tell her, call Beyonce tomorrow. She'll be like, okay, I'll call Beyonce and propose <laughs> horses to Beyonce. Yeah. That is the kind of girl she is. And she speaks a little bit of French. She speaks fluent Spanish and English. And then we have Joseph. Joseph is... I mean, okay, I'm a bit biased here, but he's one of the most amazing person you could ever meet. He's a U.S. Marine, so he's tough. Um, and now he sells ponies on the internet. So, <laughs> you know, he loves the job. He's so resilient and he's so humble. And he really, really is the person that keeps the team together. I'm not a team player. I'm not the greatest team player. I'm really like this. And it's hard for me to listen. And it's hard for me to, I'm not the greatest listener. He's a brilliant listener. He doesn't speak much, but he always provides great ideas. So I think that the team is what is going to allow us to scale. It only comes mm -hmm. down to people. If it was just for me, I don't know it where it would happen. Yeah. No.
no chance. Yeah, I think, you know, the recurring theme is always surrounding yourself with good people and finding people to to um who have the strengths that you don't have. So I think that uh you're you're proving the point once again <laughs> that we've mm-hmm. talked with um with many women about and it's it's who you surround yourself with. And um I think it's cool that you've been able to find such a great team in in such a unique business. I appreciate that. And you know, the thing is is like you know how how you always need that balance in business and you know your team's not your family and and this and that and you know you don't want your your job to end up being a cult uh you want to make sure that you have some boundaries and for me it's like sometimes i'm a terrible ceo because i forget to set boundaries sometimes i'm having i have angela who texts me at 11:59 at night saying oh my god i got a horse for this blind and i'm like <laughs> okay calm down like you're not supposed to be working and sometimes I have Jade, like right now she's doing her driving license, like her course. And she messaged me earlier and she said, hey, I've got free calls today. I'm like, what do you mean? You're out of office for the week. She says, yeah, but at lunchtime I'm working on bridal because we could... And I'm like, girls, like take a chill pill. You're not supposed to be working. But they are so like, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. They are so committed to this company. Yeah, I don't pay them that much. I'm not joking. Like genuinely, I pay them whatever we can. And we always try to give them bonuses. And when, of course, the whole sells and they're involved, they get a commission as part of that. Mm-hmm. But it's really um, it's really unbelievable how people that genuinely care about your mission and care about you can be committed. And I think yeah. that this is really what we found with them. Yeah, and I, f- I feel like if you have that team and you're working together towards a goal that you've all set, then... Y- you know, they know that when you hit that goal, they'll be included in the success of it, you know, whether it's financially or not, um, that it's, it's important that they're in on it with you, um, and, and get something from it as well. 100%. And I think that, you know, speaking of equity, I'd love to give something to my team and I'd love to, to get them to, to be involved for the long term of the company. And, and I always tell them that it's like, hey, this is not just about what we do now. It's not about the 5K commissions you can make next month or about all that. It's really about the ability in the long term to be part of the team and be one of the biggest pillars of the company once it makes hundreds of millions. Because if I don't think that this business is going to be the biggest thing, it's never going to be the biggest thing. And maybe we won't become the biggest thing. And mm. it's just going to be a learning opportunity. But for me, for these girls, like it is my responsibility to make it huge. Well, Marie, it's been a really pleasure to speak with you about your business and your experiences and um, about the industry. Sometimes we don't always kind of get into the weeds of things um, like we were able to here today. And I find it really fascinating. And um, And I love your outlook on business. And um, it was just great speaking with you. And, you uh, at, mm-hmm, and at the end of each episode we ask the same four questions to every guest and connor starts with the first one what is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives well freaking odd question i think um being brave doing it even if you're terrified because i'm scared most days yeah that's what i say what is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally 
just believing in yourself you know like i don't have these crazy habits he tries to make me have these perfect habits and follow these motivational gurus and I'm, I'm, i'm the type of girl that still snoozes when i have an important meeting but kind of seeing constantly what you can do to take yourself to the next level and and believing in your dreams because at the end of the day if i didn't believe in that dream if that 20 year old girl didn't believe in her dreams when i got all these jobs and all these you know thoughts that crossed my mind if i didn't chase those dreams i, I just simply wouldn't be here so even if that top 160 rider tells you you can't jump me to 30 ever because you don't ride good enough tell him to back off and tell him you'll jump 160 against him one day you know you really <laughs> have to believe in your dreams and yourself to keep going for sure that's amazing well uh, do you have a favorite horse movie I think it, yeah, it has to be Secretaria. Um, I'm a horse <laughs> racing girl at the end of the day, you know. This one in yeah. Japan, like, ah, uh, this is yeah. And who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast? Okay, here I'm a little bit. Oh, it has to be women, doesn't it? We okay. prefer it, yeah. <laughs> there is there is a person that I'm working closely with now who. I don't know if she'll want to do this podcast, but she's the CEO of Scuderia 1918. She's a woman. She's powerful. She's, yeah, she's a completely different character and personality to me. But I think she's she's someone that I, yeah, I would say is, is really, really smart and, and very inspiring for sure. Great. What's her, what's her name? Marta. I'll send you her profile on LinkedIn. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for speaking with us today. We really sure. enjoyed it. I love speaking. So you guys got me speaking for an hour about myself. What better thing to do on day That's amazing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Hey, Equestrian B2B podcast listeners. Ready to level up your biz? Ride Every Stride specializes in tailoring brand identities for equestrian businesses. From logo development, essential stable accessories, and custom product branding to exclusive awards, VIP event must-haves, and chic apparel, they've got you covered. Visit rideeverystride.com, use code B2B15, that's B2B15, at checkout for an exclusive 15% discount. Elevate your brand with Ride Every Stride, supporting women in business and equestrian excellence. It was so great speaking to Marie today, and I'm so glad that she reached out on LinkedIn and we had an opportunity to connect because while I understood what bridal was, it was great to be able to dive in a little deeper and figure out exactly what it was and just how brilliant she is. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to believe she's only 25. I keep getting blown away by all these young women that we speak with and, um, you know, just... I think people like to bag on the younger generation all the time of them not being hard workers and right. all of that. And maybe you can put a blanket statement on, on some people, but there's definitely standouts. Um, and I think we've spoken to a few of them already and uh, yeah, Marie's really impressive. Um, she's obviously really smart and motivated and driven uh, that comes through in everything that she says and does. So um, it's exciting to see, you know, what she's built and, and how she can grow it. And I think it's super interesting how she came from like a real true horsey background and mm. 
while she's still in the horses, she kind of like evolved out of it and then was able to take from ideas from outside of the equine industry. And now she's kind of bringing it back and implementing those things into the equine industry, which I think is so important and we need to do more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's always ways to improve, you know, efficiency in the customer experience. And it seems like she's really found a way to do that um, in the equine sales business which is sorely needed, I think. I mean, we we got pretty deep into talking yeah. <laughs> about things like that. And, um, you know, I think it's the same in Europe as it is in the U.S. Of, of the issues there are when you're dealing with these animals that cost so much money. In, you know, every time you have a transaction that is worth that much money that is not regulated by anyone, you're yeah. going to have bad actors and the way that she wants to do it and um, and the way that she's putting her values first, I think is a really good sign. And I hope she has a ton of success because I think there needs to be more people like her. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think I told the story in the podcast about I almost got screwed over by somebody and mm -hmm. I think I'm not... Um, I'm not somebody who would easily be screwed over. I think I'm aware of, of things. So it just goes to show you how easily and quickly that can happen to somebody mm -hmm. who's not quite as educated. And I do think that it's a hard part of our business. And sometimes I think that, um, that it's a little bit of a money grab. And we always talk about like inclusion in the sport and it's, mm. it's like, this is, part of the problem of getting more Absolutely. people to want to be involved. So I am yeah. so happy to see her really sticking by what she says. And, and I actually did talk to a few people to see before we had her on, if they knew who she was and everybody said yes. And they did say she is definitely working hard to make sure that she sticks to her values and is not screwing people over. So mm. very much appreciate that. Yeah. I loved hearing about her experience, um, uh, you know, in that in that program um, and what they had to go through and right. you know, the crazy stuff. Like, I didn't, I guess I didn't really realize there were things like that. I just always thought it was more classroom learning or listening to speakers or working on group projects and things right. like that. I still associate it with more of a traditional learning experience like university. Mm -hmm. And that is not what she went through. And no. it's really fascinating to think like how that affects people and how it, it for better or worse could make them um, a good leader and a good business person. Um, and, you know, what it probably generates in people of, you know, there's probably people in that who had never gone on like a mile hike in their lives. Right, right. And then they were forced to like live yeah. outside and find a way to eat and like kill a chicken. I was like, oh my God, no, I couldn't handle that. But um, no. yeah, that, you know, when you have to to dig deep in yourself and find those places that you've maybe never tapped into before um, and what you learn from that and what you get out of it and apply 
going on in your life. Uh, yeah, like she said, it, it's life-changing. Yeah, and I like that she took that approach. I, not that I'm against any kind of college. I think if it's for you, it sh- you should go. But I do think that the, with opportunities that are out there like this, that you can get scholarships to, and mm-hmm. it's and you know, even if it's the same amount you have to put out as you went as what you're putting to go to college, if this is a better learning way for you or a better experience. Um, to get you where you want to go, then I think that people should be aware of it and they should try it mm-hmm. because, you know, traditional school is becoming more and more where people are questioning whether it's worth the amount of money that they're spending to go get this, the college experience. And this is like real world life experience. So if you want something that's not as traditional, trying to seek out a program like this might be for you. But like she said, some people went through it and they figured out it wasn't for them. Being right. entrepreneurs is not for everybody. There right. are people who do better in working for companies and having that stability. I mean, entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is definitely one of those things where you have to have some grit and you have to have be able to take a little risk to do it. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it depends on what you want to do and the type of position that you're aiming to get. I mean, you're not going to walk into a Fortune 500 company and and be a a vice president without a degree for the most right. part, I don't right. think. I mean, <laughs> you know, unless you have a proven track record of experience of of right. doing that same thing over the years, but uh Right. Yeah, I think it's all about um you know, putting isn't that into isn't those that, positions to learn? Yeah, and but I think that's so interesting, right? Because you know, you want you're supposed to have a degree in order to run a Fortune 500 company, but meanwhile, these people are asking for millions of dollars of other people's money to fund their businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going through these startup incubators to have an opportunity to have their life changed, and many of them don't have degrees. They're going through this to for an opportunity to make the connections to get the money to get them where they want to go right it's pretty wild it is (laughs) and it's like an interesting way that she came up with that and thought about it and and got involved so i you know like she said be brave at the end and i really appreciated that because it is a lot of it is just putting yourself out there and doing it Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's it's cool to see another perspective and how it works for someone. And I think, you know, for anybody listening to all these different episodes and seeing all of the different uh, education and career paths that people have taken to get where they are, you know, obviously one size doesn't fit all. And yeah, you can take away different things from every person's experience and, you know, oh, say, oh, that's not for me. Like, yeah. or you know, saying, I do want the structure and I do want a degree and right things like that. I think it's, it's great to be able to provide um, all of these women's different paths and, and show how they got to where they are um, and how something might work for you. Yeah. And I also love how our episodes 
tend to like tie into one another in different aspects. And this one, it's funny how the last one we just talked about, like having reputation in regards to cybersecurity, and then we revisit reputation in a completely different light in reference to like sales and having a good reputation in that. And I just love that the podcasts can find these little nuggets and threads throughout a lot of them. It's kind of I, exciting, right? Yeah, I think there's overarching themes that yeah. keep reoccurring because of the subject matter. You know, we are talking about business, uh, you know, every episode, and right. there are those parts to business that um, are important and fit no matter what you're doing. Yeah, so, absolutely. And to see, you know, how they how they link together and and how people use them and how it benefits them or doesn't um, is. I think the most interesting part about talking to people. Yeah. And then networking, getting people to network and, and talk and figure out collaborating with other mm -hmm. people. I mean, it's, it's really cool. It's really cool to have heard some of the stories of people who are collaborating post uh, the Wellington networking mm -hmm. event. Mm hmm you and I have to get moving today because we are working on our event in California. So you can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. You can have all 20-plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now, go be brave. Be brave.